Amen. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors, and today we're going to kind of be all over the Gospels. So if you have a copy of the Bible, Old and New Testament, those first couple books in the New Testament are called the Gospels. You can turn or tap your way there. Uh, it may be helpful to just kind of write down references as we go. We'd love for you to be able to keep up with the, the Bible-ness of what we're talking about today. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a Bible in a readable English translation before you leave today. But at Hope Church, over the summer, we've got this long series that I'm really enjoying, and we're calling it Good Guides. And the reason that we're doing this is it allows us to look at different people throughout Scripture to remind ourselves slash inform ourselves of the story of Scripture, while at the same time applying lessons, seeing how God has worked with those individuals and thinking about how God wants to now work with us. There's a reason that those people were talked about in Scripture. He could have talked about lots of different people, but he gave us these people intentionally. Well, why? He's teaching us something about how he operates or who he is and how who he is operates with fallen humanity. Here's the problem, though. You do that, and it's pretty straightforward. And then you get to Jesus. Now, you think in one sense, well, yeah, duh, Jesus is the best good guide you could have. And of course it is. The answer is always Jesus. Yes, he is the good guide. Amen. However, have you guys ever seen those what would Jesus do bracelets? Was that a thing? I'm realizing as I'm getting older that I'm part of a generation and it's not every generation. <laughs> but I, I, maybe you've seen those before. They're little knit bracelets, usually in like primary colors, and they'll have WWJD, just those letters on the bracelet. And what it is intending to do, I think, is to make you think, hmm, here's an interesting situation I'm in. What would Jesus do in this situation? And the intent would be that you would make I mean, I guess like a divinely wise choice in that situation, and you would come through the other side. And if all those bracelets mean are that according to your lights, make the wisest decision you can in any given situation, then sure. But if you are a pastor who's going to stand in front of people and tell them what God says, you have to think a little bit more about what you're going to say. And if you are a Christian hearing the what would Jesus do bracelet idea, then you may have to kind of think about that for a second and say, well, I can't do what Jesus could do. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Well, uh, he calmed some storms. I don't have that option in this situation. Uh, at one point, he like fed everybody. So I, I don't have that ability. Uh, he often would like heal people. I can't do that. Uh, he often would exercise demons, just like cast them out. Uh, there's stuff there. There are things that happen in Jesus's ministry where you think, in my situation right now, gee, that would be useful. But I don't know that what Jesus would do in this situation is something that's really on the table for me in my situation. And I would say that I, I agree. That makes sense. When I was in seminary, which in our tradition, seminary is kind of like a post-grad thing. You, you do your... Um, you know, bachelors or whatever, and then you go to, to seminary. And seminary is like a, a pastor training school. And in that master's or whatever, the, one of the classes was on evangelism. 
And the professor was leading us through John chapter 4, which is the story of Jesus interacting with this Samaritan woman. And it's a classic evangelistic sort of text because it's Jesus sharing the gospel or who he is and what he's doing with a specific person. And it's a master class. Like he does what he does with subtlety and nuance, but yet boldness and care. He's, he's matching things that are incredible. And so the pastor, uh, the, the seminary professor is leading us through this passage where Jesus is interacting with this woman. He's speaking somewhat metaphorically about water and about himself and about the people of Israel and about the Samaritans. And she, at an impasse, says, I don't have a husband because he said, go and bring your husband here. When she says, I don't have a husband, he goes, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. Now, I don't know the tone in which he said it. Maybe it was a much nicer tone than that very, like, blasé presentation. I don't know how he said it. I have to imagine it stung and was said with love. But as he says that to the woman, it opens up a whole new conversation with her, and it comes to a place in which she starts to understand that he who speaks to her is the Messiah. Now, we get through all this, and the professor says, all right, well, what can we learn from here about how to do evangelism? And this guy from South Korea, he said, mm, I, Jesus had certain advantages. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a good way to say it. He already knew so much about this woman. He had the wisdom of God about how to interact with this woman, but he, he also knew things that we don't know about the people that we're sharing the gospel with. Jesus had certain advantages, what would Jesus do as a bracelet? Sure, I guess. But, but when you actually say to yourself, be like Jesus, there's a lot going on there. What the Bible says about Jesus is not just that he was perfect and a man, but that he was also God become man. If you were with us last week, we talked about Mary, and Mary is a human. She's a person that had a story that was incredible. But one of the things about Mary, or what God did through Mary, was to be the place at which divinity and humanity both take on one personhood. The Son from forever takes on a dual nature of humanity. So while Jesus is us, he is also not us. And while we should be like him, we can't be like him. And that's a pretty important distinction. That wording is a little bit felicitous because it takes you back, if you've, if you've read the early part of the Scriptures, to a place in Genesis where the enemy tempts our first parents with our first sin, and the temptation is to be like God. So while we do want to be like Jesus, there's actually a temptation in our hearts to be like Jesus in a way that I think we have to confront this morning. And so what I want to do is I want to present Jesus as our good guide. He is our master and our Lord. Every thought should be toward him. I'm not trying to minimize him in any way. I'm trying to be very careful about what the Bible actually says about Jesus, which is that we should be like Jesus and we should absolutely not be like Jesus. In what ways? And then finally, we're going to say, well, okay, well, what do we do with Jesus. So the first thing I want us to focus on is what we should do like Jesus. What, what about Jesus is something that our lives should reflect? The first is that we should obey the Lord. Jesus in his life modeled obedience to the Lord. In John 5, you get a very typical sort of, it's, it's thematic in John. He says it a lot. And so you get something like verse 19 and 20 where he says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
The son, talking about himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father, talking about the Lord, doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. What Jesus talks about when he talks about his own ministry is a total submission and dependence, a total obedience toward God the Father. And he models that with his life. In every instance we have of Jesus, he is perfectly following God's commands with his head, his heart, and his hands. You have people that will do good things for God, but their hearts are totally turned away from him or turned against the people that they're trying to serve. You have people that have good hearts and good hands, but their heads don't understand anything about who God really is. And so they, they're thinking in ways that are actually pretty blasphemous, to use a word that we don't like to use much. But Jesus never sinned with his hands, his heart, or his head. He was in complete obedience to the Father. And that's why he says stuff like he can do nothing of his own accord. That's an obedience that we need to follow. We need to obey as he obeyed. And I think that's pretty hard. And we're going to keep talking about it as we go through this sermon. And it's a big theme of Hope Church. But, but think for a moment about how difficult it is to say that your obedience to the Lord is going to be total. Not a tithe, but total. Jesus models that kind of obedience to the Father. And you say, well, how do you go about that kind of obedience? It implies a level of humility in Jesus. Think for a second about how insane it is to say that God could be humble. But here we have Jesus who is submitting himself. He's being humble. He's accepting a humble position, which is the reverse of the human heart from Babel and even Eden. The, the opposite is what takes place. And Paul in Philippians writes about this. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And you say, well, hey, good word, Paul. But if you continue reading Philippians 2, you'll see that he grounds that humility in the example we have of Jesus that Jesus was incredibly humble. Why? He saw himself in relation to the Father and decided to submit himself to obey what the Lord gave him to do. I, I don't know, man. I think you and I have a real difficulty with this. I think you and I are not able as well to submit ourselves in humility. Maybe we submit ourselves, but we want to get paid for it. No, he is telling us to submit ourselves in humility. It says in John 13, what we have in John right in the middle, sort of from a chapter perspective, uh, you know, kind of like 13 to uh, 17, 18, 17, 13 to 17, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, and we get a lot of Jesus interacting with his disciples around that Last Supper. And right as he begins that Last Supper, Jesus takes off his outer robes, he gets down on his, his knees with some water. And he washes his disciples' feet. Then he sits down. He says, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. And he said to them. So they got clean feet. That's great. It lasts, you know, 30 minutes. They're going to, feet are going to get dirty again. The service itself was wonderful. I'm sure they appreciated it. But it's not really the fullness of the service. It's not the fullness of the message. Jesus sits down, putting again on his garments as their Lord and teacher, to explain to them the magnitude of what he just did when he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and you call me Lord. And you're right, for so I am. 
If then your Lord and teacher, I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Wow. You're talking about modeling obedience. There's obedience and then there's humble obedience. Do you see what that's describing? What Jesus has is a totally God-centered understanding of himself in the world. What we often have is a very self-centered understanding of ourselves and the world. And we would describe that biblically as pride. Here's an example of pride from my own life. I could pick out one of a billion, trillion, million because I'm unfortunately a proud person. But yesterday, I was here. We had the Kinyarwandan revival going on. Pastor Mambano asked if I would stop by at some point. I don't speak the language. There's not like a benefit to me personally, but I was very excited to see what was happening. So yeah, I was encouraged to come. But it's not like I'm a participant in the same way as people who could fully engage in what was happening. So I came and, and hung out for an hour or two. And it was great. Pastor Mabano sat by me and he was translating some of what was happening and it was incredible. But as one of the things that was happening was happening, I, think, I don't remember if it was singing or preaching. I think it may have been preaching. There was a lady behind me whose baby was making light fussing noises. Not like, you know, shaking the dust crying, but like, you know, just sort of fussy baby noises. And she was speaking to the fussy baby in Kenyawandan. And in my head, I actually had the thought, lady, that baby's not going to understand you. I don't even understand what you're saying. That baby's not going to understand what you're saying. Now, that is not only one of the dumber thoughts that you could have in the course of a day. Think about how proud that thought is. And specifically, how me-centered that thought is. What that thought assumes <laughs> is that all the world considers me to be good and normal and everybody else are just like degrees of separation from what I consider to be good and normal. This lady speaking to her, her son or daughter in, in another language wasn't an offense to me, but just seemed real dumb until I realized who the dumb one was. Well, don't you understand that that's what pride always does? Pride puts you in the center of the universe, which could not be more different from the truth that actually God is in the center of the universe. And so to order yourself or your actions or your affections or other people around you as though you are the center of the universe is fundamentally not only wrong and sinful, but stupid. What Jesus does with his humility is to put God at the center of the universe. You say, well, Jesus is God. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And being found in a man... In the form of man, he, he's humbled himself, even unto death, even death on a cross. So, so the Lord does model for us not only obedience, but humility, and we should follow him in that way. You should see Jesus as a guide there. What would Jesus do? You should obey and obey humbly like that. And you go, okay, great. Well, I can see that pride's stupid. Obviously, it was stupid in your situation. I want to be more humble. I don't really know how to do that, though. 
Well, let me introduce you to the sort of the second set of our thoughts about Jesus's guide. And I think each of these is going to have the added benefit of helping you with humility. Because if you want to be humble, you have to break your brain against something that is so much bigger than you are that you start to realize your actual size. And when you see the person of Jesus, you don't just see somebody who out obeys you. You see in Jesus something that is so much bigger than you. That to break yourself against it is to humble yourself before him. So there are things we should do like Jesus, but there's also things we should not do like Jesus. If you read about Jesus's life and ministry in the Gospels and the things about Jesus in the writings about him afterward that his disciples wrote through the rest of the New Testament, you see that there are things Jesus did that are singular, that we should not do like him, even though I think a lot of us try to. And the number one on that list is to try to accomplish salvation. I think a lot of times we don't think about Jesus as the one who is the only one who can accomplish salvation. I think we kind of think that we can be pretty involved in that pursuit. We kind of think that, it, you know, if, if you just ask us about it, that, that our lives are getting better all the time and, and really, you know, they're going to be kind of impressive to the Lord. There's going to be a point at which he would say that we don't actually need that much Jesus in our life because our life is already going pretty well, that we've, we have accomplished salvation. Another one would be that, that you can't really forgive sins. You can forgive offenses against you, and some of those can be some of the most horrible things that happen. I'm not trying to minimize. I know that your world and your life are not my life, and things might have happened to you that would be not only criminal, but just abhorrent. I, I get that. And while you are commanded to forgive those people, and we'll lead you through what that looks like, that's not easy, it's complicated. Everything that we're going to talk about today, anytime you talk about anything that's anywhere near Jesus, you immediately have the John moment at the end of the gospel where he said, and listen, this is only some of the stuff that happened. If everything were written down that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books. You can't say everything in one talk. We are commanded to forgive. There's a lot there. But there is a difference between being a person who absolves somebody else of their sin towards you and assuming that you have the right or capacity to forgive, to forgive the sins of another person. Now, Peter talks about us as a nation of priests. And in Christ, we do have some functions that are somewhat similar. But as a pastor, you call me pastor, maybe you call me friend or teacher, but you don't call me priest. You don't come to me to have God forgive your sins. You go to Jesus for that. And going to Jesus for that is part of what made the Pharisees want to kill him. Because the difference between our forgiveness and God's forgiveness is that you can forgive offenses against you, but you cannot forgive the way people have broken the divine law. Only the divine writer of that law can forgive such a sin. That's why it was so crazy that when Jesus was going about his ministry, he actually forgave. He didn't just like have somebody step on his toe and go, it's okay. He forgave people of their sin before God as though he were God. Some skeptics will say that the Gospels don't really have Jesus calling himself God. You know, there's a story out there that Jesus is just a good man and his disciples, you know, got a little drunk and took it too far and said, no, 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 he's not a good man. He's God. Oh, and you have to worship him. Oh, and we got to have a church now and you got to tithe. Oh, 
And Jesus would have rejected this whole edifice and said, no, 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 I'm just a good man. Try to be like me. You know, what would Jesus do? I have these bracelets I'd love for you to hand out. (laughs) That that's what he would actually have been. But Jesus, when you read the Gospels, does things that only God can do. That's why the Pharisees want to stone him all the time. He forgives sin as though he were God. There's a difference there. We would be wise to remember it. See, another thing Jesus does that, that does, I think, maybe hit our life more than we want to realize. Something Jesus does that we shouldn't. You know, we can't accomplish salvation. We can't forgive sins as he does. But we also shouldn't accept worship. In Jesus' ministry, there are times when people will praise God and then they'll praise him as God and he doesn't correct them. There are times in the Bible where angels will come and they'll speak to people. And angels are not like humans who have died and then God gave them wings as like an upgrade. Angels are a totally different species. They're a whole different thing. They're a different class of creation. And God sends them. Angel is just from the word that means messenger. He'll send them at times to speak on his behalf. And there are times where they'll come and speak and people are so amazed by the otherness of the thing that they're speaking to that they're tempted to worship it. It happens in uh, John's revelation a couple of times where John, the guy who spent time with Jesus, is confused. And they're always having to stand him up and say, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant. Worshiping the wrong thing is not 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 a small thing. The angels are quick to try and stop that nonsense. Because accepting worship that belongs to God is a very wrong thing, unless you're God. When Jesus accepts worship, he's saying something very specific about himself. We, on the other hand, need to be humble servants who go about doing our jobs, not trying to accept worship. I think you've got to be really careful here. There's incentive in the heart of human to say that you want to be like God. And so when you do something nice and people go, wow, there's a part of you that wants to go, yeah, wow. And present yourself as an object of, maybe we say admiration, but I think what we really mean is worship. No, we're supposed to be something different. In Luke, Jesus says, He talks about a master and his servants, and he says, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you, and the answer is obviously no, (laughs) which, okay. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Jesus gets the worship. What do we get? Jesus. (laughs) So that gets us into our third part here. What should we do like Jesus? Man, obey and obey in humility and and a thousand, thousand things. What should we not do like Jesus? Well, we need to see the difference between creature and creator and see the uniqueness of Jesus as both. Again, you just step into heresy so quickly, and I don't mean to, but he's got a dual nature there, but he is God and man. That's different. So then, well, what do we do with Jesus? Well, we fall in his feet in worship. I don't know how often you, you attempt to, like, get close to a personality that you consider, like, impressive. You know, maybe it's Twitter. Maybe it's biographies, which is just nerdy versions of Twitter. 
here's how I see that. Like in Twitter, you go and you find people that you find to be like really wonderful or impressive or famous and blue check mark and you, you can follow what they're doing. You become their follower. That's your title. And, and you, you watch what's happening. You read about what they're doing and maybe you can send them a direct message like a prayer, you know, like you let them know that you exist and try to interact in some way. Biography is just written down Twitter. It's just printed off Twitter. It's, it's somebody's story of their life, of what they did and what they ate and what they think and whatever. And you, you examine that. But just because you're reading that versus tweeting that doesn't make any difference. You, you can have the same temptation in your heart to look at this person as a capital P person. Someone really impressive that you want to draw close to. Listen, the problem is not the human desire to worship. The problem is where you aim that thing. See, there's people, and people are really wonderful, impressive, made in the image of God. I get why they're impressive. Angels, really impressive. I can understand the temptation maybe to fall at their feet. But the problem is that there's something greater that you should aim your worship at. Jesus is what you should aim your worship at. What do we do with Jesus? We worship him. We worship him because he's God, but we worship him because he's God and because he's like God with us. I want you to think for a second. There's a story called the Transfiguration. It's where Jesus has got his disciples. It's a little into his ministry. He's got his 12. They're running around. They're doing their thing. And at one point, he takes three of those guys with him up to a place, like a place away from the others that's up a little higher. And when they get there, Jesus is transfigured before them. That's our word for it. He goes from being a person with a hair color and you know Jewish guy that they were around to being revealed as what he also is. And he becomes this glorious appearance. They see something of more of what this thing is that's been with them. And of course, they're reacting to that. And then they see Moses and Elijah come. And it's not like almost dead Moses at 120. And it's not bummed out, depressed Elijah in the cave at the end of his ministry. It's like them after they've died and they've been with the Lord and they're standing there talking with Jesus. And of course, the disciples are freaking out. They don't know what to do. They shouldn't say anything. Peter does talk again. You know, he doesn't know what he's saying. And he says like, hey, Lord, it's good. We're here. Do you want me to build you houses? No idea, you know, but whatever. And they don't respond to the question, which is the best way to not respond to a nonsensical <laughs> question. Um, and then a cloud sort of like engulfs everything. And from the cloud, they hear the voice of God. And after that, <laughs> when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and are terrified. They just give up the ghost. They fall down. They do everything but pass out. But then Jesus comes and he touches them, saying, rise and have no fear. <laughs> rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw nobody but Jesus only. Uh, there's a lot here. It's just the books, the world doesn't hold it stuff. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying he's God. Like, wet your pants, terrify you, holy and he's, he's here. And he's close. And he's a thing that you can touch and hold. And he's saying to you, rise up. Have, have no fear. Emmanuel, he's God with us. 
what do you do with this Jesus? You, you worship this Jesus and you trust this Jesus for salvation. So you get to the end of the New Testament and John, one of the guys that was at this transfiguration actually, is talking about what God shows him about what will be in the end. And he talks about a judgment that takes place. And in the judgment, they have these books that they open up and the books tell about the people that are being judged. It's like reading off your charges. <laughs> but also, maybe, you know, reading off your good things that you did. And in that book of Revelation, when John sees this vision and sees that judgment, he says that the people that have their lives read about or talked about in that book all fail. How do I know that? Because then there's a different book. They have the book that is the life of these people that fail against the holy standard of God. And then they have a different book, which is the book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. And in it are written those that have called on Jesus for salvation. Not been awesome. They have a life, and that life is written in the other book, and it's a failing life. But they also have their name written in this other book. And it says in Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, that's the negative way of saying a positive thing as well. Everyone whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life was then invited into God's presence forever. You can't accomplish salvation. You can't do anything that blows God away so thoroughly that he goes, wow, we need you in heaven. You are so impressive that we really, gosh, you know, it's kind of janky up here without something as cool as you to be a part of our heaven. Heaven's going great and it does not require us. But what Jesus has done is to come and live a life so perfect that if the only books were the books of judgment, he still would have made it. His life was perfectly obedient to the Father, head, heart, and hands in every way. And because he was so perfect, there's this new book where everybody who has called on him can receive his obedience and his perfection and hand him their sin and their brokenness. So that he pays for the one and we receive the other. Do you trust in Jesus like that? I don't know if you're a Christian or not. Do you trust in Jesus like that? Or is there a part of you that thinks, I'm just going to try and do what Jesus did and one day I'll stand before God and that'll probably be good enough. Do you understand that in Jesus' teaching? He said there are going to be people that will stand before God and they will have done incredibly impressive things. And he actually doesn't say that they did really awful things too. It's not like they prophesied and cast out demons and then also, you know, murdered children. It wasn't like they had these balancing things. What he says is they did really wonderful things. But he'll say in that day, depart from me for I never knew you. What does that mean? You think you did something impressive, but you did it in the idea, with the hope that God would bless you for you as well. You were doing it with me or for me. You were doing it for you. You don't even know me. 
That's at the heart of Christianity. People think religion all the time, and they put us in that same bucket, and they think, okay, I'm going to go and do something, and God's going to reward. I'm going to go and pay something, and God's going to give back. He requires something, and so I'm going to go do that, but I hope that at the end of that requirement, I can then go and do what I want to do. C.S. Lewis talks about it as a good person trying to pay their taxes. He says, we're like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them, but he does hope that there's going to be enough left over for him to live on (laughs) because we're still talking about our natural self as the starting point. We still think that we're the center of all things. And so, yes, if God does need something or deserve something, sure. Sunny mornings, fine. Tithe, ugh. Okay, fine. Evangelism, I don't know, maybe someday. Fine. But then once I've done that, he can leave me alone to go and have my life. Just like I pay the taxes, but I don't go hang out there, right? Like maybe I pay the taxes, but I hope there's enough left over that when I'm done paying the taxes, I can go have my life. But that's not what Jesus is here for. He's here for you. It's not paying taxes. It's marriage. It's adoption. What do you get in marriage? You don't get a portion of their income. You get them. What does God want? He doesn't want a portion of your obedience. He wants you. He takes care of your obedience and your disobedience. He wants you. So there's stuff about Jesus you should try to be like. There's stuff about Jesus you should certainly not be like. But I'm I'm much more concerned that you be with Jesus than be like Jesus. Is he a good guide? Of course. But he's not a guide in the sense that you get there and you say thanks and tip him and he leaves. He's the one that he's leading you to. (laughs) And so the last thing that I want to just kind of emphasize as we finish this is then you go and tell the world about him. Trust him and then tell the world about him. Yeah, we say evangelism, we make it sound like a work. Just like we say prayer, we make it sound like a task. We're talking about knowing him and then sharing him. Raise your hand if you were here last week. Good job, David Edmonds. He was here. (laughs) All right. If you were here last week, I asked you to write two paragraphs that just tell about your story, how you interacted with Jesus. Don't raise your hand for this one. But did you do that? I wanted you to do that because I want you to have something that you can tell about how Jesus knows you and you want other people to know Jesus like that. A testimony is specific. It's relational. And that's what you're commending to somebody else, to know the Lord as he knows you, not just to follow the Lord. There's lots of people that think that they follow the Lord, but it's kind of like a gang. In a gang, they have a job, they do a hit or whatever, and then they get paid. And the boss gets the big share, but then everybody else gets their share as well. That's why they're involved. And we kind of think that we're going to obey God. And yeah, he gets the big glory, but we get glory as well. We get our share as well. And one day, maybe, he'll get out of the way and we're the boss. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is to know and be known by him. So, if you wrote those paragraphs or or not, if you didn't, write them. But if you did, then come on Tuesday night. Think about those paragraphs while we talk about how we make disciples here in Utah. Go on Wednesday night to Big Bear Park. Walk around. We'll have people handing out snow cones. You don't have to do that. Just walk around. Talk to people. 
Try to make a connection. If you do make a connection, say, listen, this may be a little bit crazy, but I'm at Hope Church because I really love Jesus. Can I tell you, here's how I got to know Jesus. And then you say your two paragraphs. And that person's going to be standing there with a snow cone listening to you talk, and they'll probably just smile. Most likely, they'll start to engage you on their own experiences with religion or God. And you're off to the races. So they probably won't throw the snow cone in your face. They may, and if they do, you know, celebrate. You just had your version of persecution. But they probably will just speak to you about their experience as well. And here, look at that. You're an evangelist. But it all comes back to do you know him? Do you know him? Not just do you follow him. Do you know him? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you give us the grace to um, understand that difference between Jesus the good guide, and Jesus, the Lord of all things, Jesus, the good God, (laughs) that our orientation towards you is not um, a fellow traveler that we're going to learn tips from. Our orientation towards you is servant and master, um, child and father, spouse and spouse. Lord, please make us a people whose only desire is first to know you, so that in knowing you, Father, everything else changes as well, but, but so that in knowing you, we become really and truly yours, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Please teach us to be a people who ask for that, who repent and believe in the gospel. So that being changed people, Lord, we know you and you're glorified through us. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.